Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. 1590, North Carolina. All the powers of the old world of Europe are sailing west to make what they can of the new world. Spain and Portugal were the first, but the Kingdom of England, at this time ruled by Queen Elizabeth I, was hot on their heels with colonies of their own. The ship that cuts through the waves towards the Carolina shore is headed for one such colony, a small town sheltered by some barrier islands. The location seems good, lots of natural resources, shelter from the sea winds, the only real issue is that the locals haven't been too friendly on the imposition of the colony. To make matters more complicated, it's been several years since anyone's actually visited. Colonization in the early days, before the advent of faster ships or established lines of communication, was more of an art than a science and relied heavily on chance. It was expected that there would be some lack of communication, at least initially, and those colonies favoured by Providence would thrive. Others, not so much. But this colony looks to be historic. If successful, it would represent the first permanent English settlement in North America. The man standing at the front of the ship, John White, is anxious. He was put in charge of spearheading the second attempt at colonising this area by the famed explorer and socialite Sir Walter Raleigh himself, and impressing him would be an excellent way to perhaps get to the court of the Queen, a serious career advancement. But White's also got a personal reason to be apprehensive. Not only is he the governor of this colony, but his daughter and granddaughter are there and he hasn't seen them in years. His granddaughter, Virginia Dare, is actually the first English child to be born in America. As White approaches the colony, however, his brow furrows. It looks to be sturdy, from the outside at least, wooden palisade walls strong as it was ever, but the flurry of activity that would accompany a successful and thriving colony is nowhere to be seen. No fishing boats, no farmers, no children playing, nothing. The ship puts into the cove and launches ahead for the beach. Upon reaching the shore, there's no welcome party, another sign that all isn't as it should be. White and his men then approach the front gate. It's silent. The wind coming off the sea being the only noise. No people, no animals. White's mind begins to race. There could be any number of things gone wrong. When he last left the colony, it was in bad shape. Conflict with the natives, Spanish intrigues, and an attempted relocation had all stymied progress and his rescue mission. He wasn't just there for a checkup. he was bringing much-needed supplies, and he could only hope that he wasn't too late. When the gates are opened, however, the sight the men are greeted with isn't quite what they expected. The interior of the palisade had foundations, but no houses. It appears as though houses had at one point been built, as smoke was smouldering amongst some of them, but they'd been dismantled. This idea was bolstered by the fact that all items that could be easily carried by one person were gone. 
personal effects, food, farming tools, weapons, religious artifacts, almost nothing was left. There were no people, no native looters, no settlers, no one. Several chests, including that one white had buried himself a few years prior, had been dug up and ransacked. But the clue that makes this colony famous was nearby. Carved into a stake at the palisade was the word Croatoan, and the letters C-R-O in a tree nearby. What could it mean? Could it refer to the nearby Croatoan island? The tribe of natives called the Croatoan by the settlers? Did they relocate? Were they attacked? If so, why was no note left? Surely they'd be telling them where they were headed, but why leave? No signs of a battle were evident, so it seemed unlikely that the colonists had been slaughtered, unless the natives did a meticulous cleanup. Maybe the spies' reports that the Spanish were intending to take the colony were true. But in that case, where was the Spanish colony? The colony seemed fine. Why leave? If there was no food, that wasn't apparent to the search party, maybe there was more to this than met the eye. But if there was, White never found out. He attempted to go to Croatoan Island, but the weather delayed the trip. After several more delays and more dangerous weather, the ships were forced to head back to England. White maintained for the longest time that his daughter and family might still be alive, but his role in the story was overshadowed by that of his boss. Walter Raleigh maintained that the colony was alive and tried to drum up a little bit of support to find it, but only because that granted him his control of Virginia. When other colonies of greater fame such as Jamestown became more successful and later colonies developed into the famed 13 colonies replete with towns and cities, this small settlement, the first of its kind, disappeared into history, only really resurfacing when an 1834 book dug up their status as the first English colony in North America and ascribed it a mythic foundational status. And so we arrive to now, where historians debate the tale and the mystery of what happened to the colony of Roanoke. This week we're covering one of the most famous historical mysteries of all time, the Lost Colony of Roanoke. This story isn't quite as personal, maybe, as those of prior episodes, we're not focusing on one person or a small group, but it was deeply personal to the people involved, and that's always important to bear in mind. To tell this story fully, let's go back to the very beginning. European exploration of the Americas began, as far as we can confirm, with the Viking settlements in Vinland, or eastern Canada. Columbus often gets the credit for kicking off the mass exploration and colonization of Americas. I know most people already know he was a terrible person, but I'm not going to miss my chance to chip in here. He was so needlessly cruel that he was down for arrest by the Spanish who had sent him there, and in fact he was actually wrong. It was usually said that Columbus was the only one to think the Earth was round. No, everybody knew that the Earth was round, and they almost exactly knew how big it was. Columbus only got the go-ahead to go because he actually thought that the Earth was much smaller than most people knew it to be, and that it was pear-shaped, which is why he thought that he could cross the Atlantic Pacific Ocean with no America in sight to get to India, and he was wrong about that too. But this is not Columbus's story. Regardless of the intentions, the colonization of the Americas soon became the game that everybody wanted in on. 
Whilst initially the Pope had said that the New World was to be divided between Spain and Portugal, the Protestant nations, and to be honest most other Catholic nations, flatly ignored this and sailed west. One of the biggest things they were looking for was gold and silver. The Spanish had hit the motherload when they invaded the Aztec and Inca empires, and in fact they ended up importing so much silver that they ended up crashing their economy by not adjusting for the crippling inflation. When it was realised that the New World wasn't paved with silver and gold, other things manifested. Firstly, there were the matters of raw resources, sugar, tobacco, spices, other luxuries that could only grow in the tropics or in the Americas. England, for its part, would later make a fortune off of sugar plantations in the Caribbean, off the backs of the lives of hundreds of thousands of slaves. You see, for all the justifications between the religious conversion, civilization, and making use of resources, the empire game is played on a deck of human suffering, and there's not really two ways about that. There was also the strategic concern. If the French founded a colony at one end of a box canyon, you'd better believe that the English colony would be at the other end of it by sundown. In the game of European geopolitics, you can't really afford to miss a new sphere opening up. Matter of fact, the Scottish even have a short-lived colony in Panama, although that scheme failed disastrously and bankrupted the country. But that just goes to show you that anyone who was anyone, or anyone who wanted to be anyone, was founding colonies. Now, colonies at this time were mostly the enterprises of individuals, explorers or traders who wanted to make a claim. They petitioned their government for the right to make a claim, and then, in their name, set up a colony. Romanoke was founded by Sir Walter Raleigh, Raleigh is one of the most famous explorers of the Elizabethan Stuart period of English history. He was a man of his time. Born in Devon around 1552, he rose to prominence in the court of Elizabeth I and became an instrumental figure in the English colonisation of America. His royal charter covered the colony of Virginia and allowed him to settle towns and explore westward in search of resources. He was widely known as the man who popularised tobacco in England, but was slightly more infamous for his weird obsession with El Dorado. After several stints in the Tower of London for politicking, and several failed expeditions to find El Dorado, he was eventually executed by King James I for attacking a Spanish outpost in violation of a treaty in 1618. So back in 1585, he gets the go-ahead and he sails to the New World to set up the first colony at Roanoke. This colony, governed by Ralph Lane, reached the site in July of that year. The voyage over was marked by bad weather and they were already low on supplies when they arrived. Relations with the Spanish were uneasy. The mission was, in essence, a military one, establishing a British base to look for natural resources and to check Spanish expansion northward. Despite capturing two Spanish ships, one of the English vessels hit a shoal, ruining most of the food supplies. At this point, the first Revenant colony was on its uppers. Awaiting relief that wouldn't come, undermanned due to a lack of food, they were heavily reliant on the generosity of the Native Americans, and relations with them were strained at best. After a year of some decent exploration, the colony ended up having to be abandoned due to hostility from several local native tribes. They simply couldn't feed or adequately defend themselves. So they contacted Raleigh, and in the summer of 1586, the colonists returned to England. I would like to quickly take the time, by the way, to make an aside, as in this story we're going to be talking a lot about native tribes attacking settlers. One can often have this conjured imperial image of a fake justification for colonization, but it did happen simply because people attack people. The tribes of Native Americans were also human, and if these strange people who constantly take your food, encroach your land, attack your fellow tribesmen, and then ask you for more food look weak, well... There's also the justification that the Europeans often had cool stuff, and if they couldn't defend that stuff, people would try and take it. Some natives helped the settlers, some attacked them. Many did both. Humans are capable of doing both things. Now, that's the first Romanoke colony. 
but Raleigh ended up being convinced to try again. After all, the area had seemed fertile with a lot of good resources. It was only bad luck and lack of preparation that had done in the first attempt. So in 1587, they tried again. These colonists comprised about 115 people, mostly middle-class Londoners with desires of becoming landed gentry in the New World. John White was made the governor of what was supposed to be the City of Raleigh, named unsurprisingly after Sir Walter. This party was more what we'd expect of a colonisation effort, no real military force, but with women and children to try and create a self-sustaining society. By the end of July, all of the settlers had arrived, but their start was not auspicious. One man, George Howe, was murdered by natives whilst crab fishing. Now the settlers attempted to forge a peace with the Croatan, the local tribe on Hatteras Island, which is the barrier island next to the island of Roanoke, which is also rather confusingly referred to as Croatoan Island. So, Hatteras Island is Croatoan Island. We can discuss the details of that later, because it eventually transpires that it was two islands which later merged into one, but for the time being... Hatteras, Krobatoan, we're just going to treat them as basically the same. But this effort didn't go as well as they'd hoped. The English later attempted a preemptive strike on the natives, but they'd actually fled for fear of reprisal for Howe's death, and it turns out they were right. Whilst a native working with the English, a man called Manteo, had managed to smooth things over, there were rumours of a brewing native alliance to force the English out. Running low on supplies and afraid of a native attack, White, reluctantly, decided to head back to England to bring a relief force. He left for England on the 27th of August, 1587, and never saw his family again. The relief expedition was massively delayed. By the time White had returned to England in November, after a long and difficult Atlantic crossing, word had reached England of the coming attack of the Spanish Armada. Queen Elizabeth I ordered that no English vessel could leave its coastal waters so that they could be conscripted if need be. White did manage to secure a place with a supply ship amidst a privateering effort, but after more conflict with the Spanish and French, the ships headed back to England. By this time, the Queen was preparing for a counter-attack on Spain to capitalise on their victory over the Armada. White wouldn't get to make for Roanoke until 1590. And that's where we left off. White reached Roanoke in another privateering venture in the summer of 1590. The Spanish hadn't been idle. They'd been scouting Roanoke to scope the strength of the English, but saw little activity coming from the area. They observed English structures and forts, but were prevented from mounting an attack due to the defeat of the Armada and the orders of King Philip. White gets to the northern shore of Hatteras Island around the 12th of August. He sees smoke coming from Roanoke Island as well as the southern end of Hatteras Island, but investigations found nothing of interest. They attempted to cross the Pamlico Sound to Roanoke over the next few days, but the crossing is difficult and they take several casualties attempting that. They spot a fire on Roanoke on the 17th. They sing English songs to try and make contact, for various reasons they feared making a landing at night. Then, on the 18th, White and various others made landfall. The party found fresh tracks in the sand, but they didn't see any people. They discovered the letters CRO carved into a tree. Upon reaching the site of the colony, White noted that the area had been fortified with a palisade fence. Near the entrance of the fencing, the word Croatoan was carved into one of the posts. White was certain that these two inscriptions meant that the colonists had peacefully relocated to Croatoan Island. Hatteras Island, since they had agreed in 1587 that the colonists would leave a, quote, secret token indicating their destination should they ever need to leave. Now, as I mentioned before, firstly, Hatteras Island is very long. It's a barrier island. It basically runs the span of the Pamlico Sound off the coast of North Carolina. It was originally two islands, a North Island and a South Island, the North one being called Croatoan Island, that in the 1600s merged to form what we now know as Hatteras Island. 
So whilst White was anchored off the northern end, it is possible that if there were settlers on the southern end or the other part of the island, that they would not be known to him. Attempts to reach Hatteras were confounded by bad weather, and eventually the expedition had to move on. White was forced to return to England with no colony accounted for. For his part, he was absolutely certain that the colonists were still alive on Hatteras Island. White attempted to gather steam for an expedition to find them, but Raleigh had other plans. Whilst he wanted the colonists alive to maintain his claim, he eventually supported a bill that would declare White's son-in-law, Aeneas Dare, legally dead so that his estate could pass to his living son. Thus, in 1597, the colony was considered lost. For his part, at this time, Raleigh was more interested in his El Dorado expeditions than finding Roanoke. The last actual expedition went out in 1603, but by that time Raleigh had been arrested for his involvement in the main plot, and thus his charter was voided. With all that said and done, what happened to the Roanoke colony? The first account comes from John Smith. Yes, that John Smith of Pocahontas fame. When Smith was captured by the Powhatan, they told him that there were accounts of people in the area who wore European-style clothing and lived in walled houses. Smith's account supposedly included a map, which was lost to history and then recreated. He attempted to find these supposed Europeans, but couldn't. Information was then relayed that the 1587 colony had been massacred by the Powhatan, but this is also fairly unsubstantiated. William Strachey, a Jamestown colonist from the early 1600s, reported that some of the Roanoke settlers had gone to live with a native tribe, and the rest had been killed by the Powhatan on the orders of their satanic priests. From his account, we see the colonial ideology influencing the retelling of the stories that they'd have overheard. After the 1622 Jamestown Massacre, in which the Powhatan attacked and killed a large number of settlers, English attitudes shifted dramatically for the worse. Now, the natives were considered to be basically subhuman, and the story that the Roanoke settlers had all been killed was used as a propaganda tool to justify the ensuing genocide. During John Lawson's 1701 exploration of Roanoke and Hatteras Islands, he claimed to have met the Hatteras tribe a distinct tribe of Native Americans who had grey eyes, and claimed that some of their ancestors had been white. This, along with some artefacts supposedly found, convinced Lawson that the Roanoke colonists had merged with the local tribe after contact with the English was deemed impossible. The main problem with theorising about the colony's disappearance is a total lack of evidence. Basically, nothing conclusive has ever been found. No bones that can be conclusively dated to the 1587 colony, no artefacts that couldn't have come from somewhere else, no DNA evidence suggesting a definite combination of the English settlers and the local tribes, now, there are historical precedents for that, by the way. Accounts from the time and later showed that native tribes were willing to take in Europeans who wished to join them, or that they had captured, and that those that had assimilated with the local culture were often very reluctant to return. Therefore, it's likely that had the Roanoke settlers merged with the local tribe, they wouldn't have been making great efforts to be found by Europeans again, if we take the precedent as the example. This is considered the leading theory for Roanoke, the colonists' survival being given ample historical precedent. The problem then is, which tribe did they merge with? The Roanoke Hatteras tribe, a modern-day Algonquin tribe with about 150 enrolled members, identifies itself as the continuation of the Roanoke, Croatan, and Hatteras tribes. They also, therefore, consider themselves to be the descendants of the Roanoke settlers that merged by extension. Not enough conclusive DNA evidence has emerged to prove this, however. 
1885, the Democrat politician Hamilton Macmillan decided that the tribe, now called the Lumbee, which has about 55,000 enrolled members, were actually the descendants of the Roanoke colonists and their tribe. But this was politics. At the time, some considered the Lumbee to be black rather than Native American. Now the Lumbee, for their part, have a very distinct history of intermarrying between native tribes, white settlers, and freed black slaves, which has created a very distinct appearance and genetic mix-up. Macmillan wanted to win votes from them by helping forward their cause to be recognised as a native tribe, and therefore he effectively invented a history for them. The colonists could have attempted to return to England. This may seem suicidal, but direct Atlantic crossings had been done before. The French settlers at Charles Ford had abandoned the colony and constructed a ship, in which they barely, but successfully, made it back to France. The risk of the standard route, attempting to stop in the Caribbean first before making the Atlantic crossing, would risk incurring an attack from the Spanish. They might have attempted to sail north to reach another English colony. Now, on the one hand, the colony did have veteran sailors in its ranks. On the other hand, any ship that they would have been able to build wouldn't have had the capacity to carry all of them. So even if most of them were lost at sea, that still leaves a number unaccounted for. Historian David Beers Quinn concluded that the colonists transplanted themselves to Chesapeake Bay, merged with a local tribe, and were then possibly killed by the Powhatan in a massacre. Rather than the earlier theories of the colonists being killed outright, he suggests that the Powhatan attacked an integrated community of colonists and natives. One advantage of this theory is that Quinn was, until his 2002 death, a leading historian of early North American settlement and exploration. The problem with this theory is that it relies heavily on accounts like Strachey's, which were very heavily influenced by the religious and political opinions of the day and are relatively unreliable and unsubstantiated. There was a theory that the Spanish attacked, now, the Spanish had been suspicious of the colony and had also refused to recognise English claims in North America. They had also attacked English colonies before. But since they themselves were still looking for Roanoke, albeit to attack it rather than rescue it, in the 1600s, it was unlikely that they knew where the colonists went. Yet another theory suggests that there was actually a plot back in England to allow the colonists to be abandoned intentionally in order to harm Walter Raleigh's political influence, but this conflicts with the financial support of Raleigh by the plot's supposed backers. One more theory suggests that Raleigh had actually secretly relocated the colony using the new secret colony to bolster his sassafras exports, which was one of his big money-making ventures in North America. But this is also basically completely unsubstantiated and no evidence has ever been found to suggest the secret colony. A tree on Hatteras Island with Cora carved into it, C-O-R-A, had been the subject of local legends for a long time, most notably surrounding a witch supposedly with that name. Writer Scott Dawson suggested in 2006 that it could be another clue, like Croatoan, that the colonists left to show that they'd settled with the Koree people on the mainland. However, damage to the tree has made ageing it extremely difficult, and even if it did date to that period, there's no concrete way to prove that the inscription dates to that period, or that it supports this theory in any way. Finally, between 1937 and 1941, some stones were supposedly found with inscriptions carved by Eleanor Dare, White's daughter. These stones tell of the travels and eventual deaths of the colonists, but whilst one could be genuine due to some linguistic and chemical analysis suggesting that it might date from the correct time period, almost all of the other stones that were found are widely regarded to be hoaxes. So what do I think happened? Well, I think either the integration theory or the sailing theory, or a combination of both, would be the likely explanation. There's good historical precedent for European settlers or explorers being taken into Native American tribes. 
Remember the Lumbee earlier, whose identity was formed by the explicit intermarrying between native groups, freed slaves, and white colonists? Or when we talked last week about the Franklin Expedition, the theories that some Inuit tribes had taken in the Lost Sailors? Those were all based on plenty of examples of this happening in historical precedent. Even the movie Dances with Wolves is based on a real person in a real book, if only tangentially, and real situations where white colonists, settlers, explorers had been taken in, willingly or unwillingly, and integrated with Native American tribes. So there's definitely precedent to establish that it could have happened. I think, however, the more likely explanation is that first, they tried to make a ship and get out. They did have several vessels with them at the colony, but none that would have been a guaranteed survival on a transatlantic crossing. So to that end, I think they would probably have tried to make for the other English colonies up the coast further north, rather than attempting to cross the Atlantic and return to England. When the ship carrying the fleeing settlers sunk, the remaining settlers knew that there wouldn't be any more returns for help. White had been gone for several years with no guarantee that he was coming back. They then would have likely approached one of the various tribes in the region to attempt to integrate themselves, possibly leaving Croatoan as their last clue as to where they went or who they met up with. Unfortunately though, for this story, it looks like it's unlikely that we'll ever know for sure. At this point, the evidence is just so sparse. Unlike some of the other stories we've been talking about, where there may be more evidence to be found in the future, there just isn't any for the Roanoke colony. Unless the Darestones get proven to be all genuine, they prove absolutely nothing. They're probably all hoaxes. The accounts from the time are sketchy at best, with any accounts coming after the Jamestown Massacre being heavily influenced by the political situation in colonial North America. Then it's just the influence of the centuries that washes away physical evidence. DNA evidence has attempted to be gathered, but has proven nothing, really. I think the lasting message of this story is that it's important to remember what the impact of some of these stories can be. Roanoke has long since entered the popular consciousness, at least for Americans, and been used again and again for pop culture references. Ooh, the spooky story of this disappeared colony. And that's why I wanted to talk about it today. It's a very famous historical mystery. But poor old John White never saw his daughter and granddaughter again. He returned to an estate owned by Raleigh in Ireland, where he was allowed to live throughout his days. But he maintained to his dying day that his family was still alive. Long after they'd been declared legally dead, he believed... And I don't know whether it was wishful thinking or whether he genuinely believed it, that his family in North America yet lived, even though he never found them and never saw them again. And that was a long time ago. Time does help heal wounds, and John White himself is long gone, his legacy being all that's left other than his extensive series of watercolours of the people of North America. But ultimately, White's fears, his hopes, his dreams, all that he was putting into that expedition to Roanoke just disappeared. As much as it was possible for other people at the time and now to kind of sit around and debate and marvel and wonder at what might have happened and speculate, for people like White, it was a genuine conflict. You know, do you accept the popular consensus, the legal definition that they're all dead and try and move on? Do you continue believing that they're still alive and attempt to search for them, even though all of your previous attempts at searching have turned up nothing or have been met with bad luck? and that there doesn't seem to be any way to prove one way or the other whether your family is still alive? It's a real internal conflict for somebody like John White and for people that came before and after, and in situations like these mysteries that we look at in this show, there's definitely instances where the pop culture impact of a certain thing can influence the way that we look at it from a modern perspective. For example, last week with the Franklin Expedition, accounts of the tale 
contemporaneously attempted to play up the heroic nature of the struggle of the brave lost British sailors who fought it out in the cold. Whereas contemporary accounts tend to uh, almost over-demonize it, focusing on the harrowing stories of frostbite and cannibalism, and both elements are true. In order to get a holistic picture, you do have to take the realistic depiction, which can sometimes be over-egged into a demonized version, and the version that relates to you the emotions of the people at the time, the way that their fellows saw them, the way that they saw themselves or would have liked to have seen themselves and would have liked to have been seen. History is never clear-cut, it's never cut and dry, that's why we also study something called historiography, which is the discussion of the way that we look at the events that happen in history, not just that they happened. A big part of, obviously, this show is us looking at the evidence and the facts, but then when you're sorting through the evidence and the facts, you have to look at the context in order to decide whether it's worth anything. Sure, we have those early Jamestown accounts that there was a terrible massacre, but those were influenced by the fact that the Jamestown settlers, especially post-Jamestown Massacre, had a vested interest in getting rid of the Native Americans, and that story would have been perfect fuel for the fire that they were trying to build. So we don't know whether those stories are genuine or not. They could just be fabrications. They could be a genuine account. It's hard to tell, and we can't accept them as being completely reliable because they're not completely reliable. They're not backed up by any real physical evidence that we have existing today. So either... Like, for example, the historian we mentioned earlier, we take the examples at face value, or we don't, and we dismiss them. So really, the true value of a story like Roanoke is it teaches you to be conscientious in the way you look at history, to take an active involvement rather than just passively absorbing the information. Did the Native Americans attack the settlers? Maybe. They had a habit of doing it, but it was never really entirely unfounded. Did the settlers that came afterwards lie about native attacks? Maybe. Native attacks did and had happened, but equally they had a reason to lie. Was any of the evidence ever found genuine? Maybe. Some of it seems like it might be, for one of several dare stones looks like it could be from the time period. The coratory could also be from the time period. Or they could not be, and they could just be hoaxes or things that relate to something else or completely unrelated evidence. A story like the story of Roanoke teaches you to look at the history with a scrutinizing eye, to check, to see, well, is this information reliable? How do we interpret it? Do we interpret it in the context of the way that it was relayed at the time, through a lens, or do we try and look at it from a sterile modern perspective? And really the big final question, is that possible? Is it possible to take a sterile objective, modern perspective on historical events, or do our lives and our own experiences colour the way that we view things? I have my opinion as to what I think happened to the Roanoke colony, which I like to believe is based off of evidence, but perhaps events in my life and my own personal outlook colour the way that I see this. For example, I think that maybe some of the colonists survived and integrated with the Native American tribes. Do I think that just because I really don't like to think of poor old John White maddeningly scrutinizing over little documents to see whether his family was still alive? Maybe. Maybe not. But that's the lesson you have to be willing to learn when you look at history. If you want to look for things objectively, you have to be aware of your own biases as well as other people's biases. You've been listening to Demystified. This episode was written, produced, edited, and researched by me, Ashley Stars, with hosting help from Wizard Studios. 
Music was provided by ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.